0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by
1: Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Returning to the show is Brooklyn based food artist Jen Monroe. Jen's various food projects, all found at badtaste.biz, explore how we use food as economic signifiers, color's influence on our perception of taste, and how and why food and art are not only able to, but have to respond to issues affecting our environment, the most recent of which we're going to discuss today. Welcome back, Jen. Hi,
4: Coral. Thanks for having
3: me. So why why bees? What sparked this interest in bees? Uh,
4: all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh long-term question and i guess a long-term answer um a couple years ago i did a dinner that you came to um which was about um ocean food systems and climate change and how the way we eat seafood and um, and even think about what food is are by necessity going to have to change as um, the the problems that are compounded by climate change continue to unfold and affect our diets and Um, and our natural world and that was the first time I had ever done anything um, so explicitly political with my food work. It was in collaboration with an author named Alexandra Kleeman and it was I just I had so much fun working on it and um, I was really surprised by the ways in which um, people who were at the dinner kind of responded to the idea of using food as a way to draw attention to itself um, and to the natural world and Um, So I I had been kind of mulling on that for a while and um, realized pretty quickly that I think a natural way to continue with um, that kind of formula for for thinking about food and using food as a tool um, would entail moving from the ocean to to land-based agriculture and more specifically bees, which are um, just a a big pot full of problems that we've inflicted upon um, our natural food systems. So um, it's something I had been wanting to do for a couple of years, and then the more I kind of dug into researching and reading about and watching documentaries about honeybees and um, agricultural systems, the more I just was so swept up in this narrative. And it's, it's so complicated, and it's um, emblematic of so many of the issues that go on with agriculture and, um, and you know even with environmentalism in this country. Uh, and so it felt like a really natural fit for um, a dinner and a a project using food as the subject matter Um, and it's not the kind of project that I I really knew how to get um, a platform for or to get any funding for and then um, about eight months ago I met uh, a woman named Caroline Maxwell who's just a, a phenomenal producer and a curator and the kind of person who gets stuff done. And she said, you know, like, let's do something together. What do you want to do? What, what's been going on um, in your brain for a little while? And I said, well, this thing, but I don't know how. And I, it feels, it feels sort of too big. It feels daunting. It feels confusing and messy. And she's a solutions person. So uh, she really was instrumental in, in helping realize this project and, and bring it forth.
3: Mm-hmm. I think how you explain how you felt about the project daunting, messy, complicated is how we all kind of feel about bees right now i yeah. think we all there's that meme i sent you where um like a honeybee lands next to you and you're just like oh my god something's wrong i'm so sorry we did so many things is like are you okay <laughs> but i don't think any of us know exactly um w- i don't think we actually really understand what honeybees do for our food system mm-hmm. and what we've inflicted so can you give us like a bee 101
4: yeah yeah how long do you have we um, got all that okay cool <laughs> Um, so it's a it's a really interesting pro- series of problems because for me going into this, I had a, a baseline level of knowledge of like, you know, the honeybee populations are dying off colony collapse disorder, like we've really screwed this up, they're dying, they're struggling, um, and it seemed like a fairly... Uh, rich metaphor in terms of, you know, animal exploitation and like animal rights. And, you know, we've we've just like enslaved these species in agriculture and we've killed them off. And it's it's also terrible. Um, And all of that is kind of true. But the further I got into this, the more I started to understand that in a natural world, if that is like a thing that even makes sense as a concept, like in pre-colonial America, honeybees didn't exist. They're an imported species. They're not native Um, and in a, a natural world or even a natural agricultural system, if you can say that such a thing could exist in America, um, honeybees wouldn't really have to be a part of the equation. We wouldn't even need them to be here. We have 4,000 species of native, native bees in this country and they were doing just fine at like making a food supply and and making, um, crop systems and, and flowers, making all those things happen on their own, um, before, uh, settlers brought honeybees over on ships from Europe, uh, which is where honeybees come from. So, um... I think for me that's kind of been the crux of this project is yes, the honeybee scenario is tragic and awful and upsetting and we've inflicted all sorts of problems on these you know, poor tortured insects who just work their little hearts out to feed us. Um, and that's all true and it's all sad and it's all devastating and it is all uh, really useful in, in thinking about how big ag works in America, but at the end of the day it's it's just a piece of the story. and um, It's been explained to me that um, honeybees are kind of like the the broiler chickens of of the agricultural world. They're they're something that we engineered um, to perform agricultural labor for us. They're they're these like they're Frankenstein's pretty much. You know they're they're not really supposed to be a part of the equation. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's been suggested that their their presence and the way that we use them is is actually responsible for a lot of environmental damage. So that's like the short pitch, I guess, of the problem is like it's it's terrible and we do need to take care of the honeybees because we rely on them for the way we eat, but we also maybe shouldn't have to um and if we were to to really get to the root of all the problems that we've created they might not even be here at all
3: Mm -hmm. that's really interesting so um like you said it's very tragic but if they were to go extinct um how how would we proceed Are, are there enough native bees um is there enough diversity
4: yeah i mean that's a really interesting question too and and walking into this i was sort of I had a lot of doomsday language planted in my head of like, well, when the bees go extinct, then we won't have any food and we rely on them so much for our food systems. But it's been said to me many, many times that honeybees going extinct isn't really something we have to worry about because of the way that we we raise them and we breed them and we take care of them. Yes, they die off in staggeringly high numbers that definitely say like many, many things are wrong. This is urgent. Like, what are you doing? Fix this. But we also have ways to breed them up season after season. So when they die off, I mean, it's, we have to, because farmers and, and whole financial economic structures rely on them. So um, the idea of them totally going extinct probably isn't really going to happen in our lifetimes or, or really any time in the foreseeable future. But you do raise a really interesting question. What would a world look like without honeybees? What would farm systems look like without honeybees? Um, there are certain kind of experimental farms um, and even certain kind of crops like alfalfa, for example, Um, There's a huge farm in Washington state. I mean, not huge by big agricultural standards, but huge by New York city standards, I guess there's a really big alfalfa farm in Washington state that uses um, a non honeybee species. Um, They're called the, uh, the alkali bee. Um, And they are a native bee species that are particularly well suited to farming alfalfa. They live in the ground. They don't live in hives. They don't make honey. Mm. Um, And in a lot of ways, they're not super land efficient because you have to spread out whole segments of land for them to live in and burrow in um, land that you can't be farming off of. So in a lot of ways, that's you know for farmers a money sink. But if you start reevaluating the way a holistic farm might work or could work or should work, um, it maybe starts to make sense to set aside large swaths of land for bees, for insects, for pollination, for plants, um, for native things that um, can actually benefit your farm in a lot of ways. And I don't know if you're familiar with biodynamics, but a lot of those principles you know, have to do with sort of treating land not just as a cash cow, but treating it as an ecosystem and um, thinking about a more holistic means of health. So there are models where um, it is possible to grow things without honeybees. Um, Mason bees are another kind of native bee that um, have been proven to, in a lot of ways, be better than honeybees because they're not as temperature sensitive. They're not as water sensitive. Um, so honeybees have a fairly limited time of day that they can be out because they, they don't, their bodies don't work very well when it's cold. Um, they can't really fly when it's wet. There are other bees who, you know, can, can possibly do better. Um, the problem is that they're not as movable as honeybees. Um, we can't, uh, move them around because they don't live in hives. You can't pack them up on trucks and ship them all over the country. Um, but if you start thinking about honeybees, a lot of the problems that they're facing are because we move them around, um, because we have this system of migratory beekeeping where we ship bees all over the country, um, in basically to follow crop rotations, to follow what's in season and what's blooming when. Um, a lot of the health problems and arguably a lot of what caused colony collapse disorder in the first place has to do with the way we treat them. So when we say like, well, we can't, you know, use these other bees as bee slaves as conveniently as the way we do honeybees. I don't know that that's a necessarily compelling answer as to why we should continue to do so.
3: Mm-hmm. You have to telescope even more so outwards. Um, so bees, totally explain like I'm five. Be- bees are not only here to give us honey. What else do bees do and what how are they used in yeah. Food systems.
4: yeah, I think I got ahead of myself there. I'm glad you backed me up. Um, for the most part in America, uh, commercial beekeepers are not making most of their income on honey. Um, the bulk of the honey that gets consumed in America is imported from places where it's really cheap to produce honey, places like China and Argentina. Um, and why is
3: it cheaper to produce there?
4: Because labor is cheaper, land is cheaper, fewer legalities, fewer loopholes. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of commercial beekeepers in America found that they really couldn't keep up on that market. Um, that it it was not financially viable for them to be making money off of uh, honey predominantly. Um, But conveniently, with the advent of things like highways and um, large-scale farming in America, it created a new need, which was um, bees that can move. So if we think about California... um, Something you've maybe heard me talk about, telling blue in the face, but we can we can talk about monocrops in California, which are these huge, huge swaths, giant, giant farms where they only farm one thing, um, and in California, the kind of. Um, ground zero for monocropping is the, the almond orchards. It's, it's many, many millions of just endless almond trees. And those all have to be pollinated at the same time every February when all the flowers are in bloom all at once. Um, there is just no conceivable universe where there are enough honeybees that can live, um, on an almond farm in order to pollinate all of them all at once. And the reason for that is because, um, bees need food all year round or at least when they're not um, you know, holed up for the winter they they need to be eating whereas if you're on a monoculture where there's only one plant growing you're only going to have a couple of weeks of flower bloom available for them and that means only a couple weeks of food Um, and that means that they starve to death the rest of the year so you can't have bees living on a monocrop but you have so many flowers that need pollination on a monocrop that you need a ton of bees which doesn't make any sense and that kind of creates this reason for having migratory beekeeping for having bees that are shipped um, all over the country year round so every February when the almond crop blooms in California, about 80% of the honeybee population in America gets shipped out to California. It's just millions and millions, I mean, really billions and billions of bees. Uh, it's it's just, it's like a staggering event. Um, so that's kind of what the life of a commercial honeybee keeper looks like. It has usually not very much to do with honey and usually a whole lot to do with um packing up uh, semi trucks full of your bees and uh, trying to figure out what route for your year makes sense and how to maximize your money. and it's it's hard. It's I mean, especially with the way bee populations have been just plummeting year after year, um, It's expensive, it's precarious, it's stressful. It's you know, your livelihood can just fall out from underneath you overnight. Um, and it's you know not maybe the cash cow that it has been at other points in time when bee populations weren't so as in flux. Um, so that I, does that kind of answer your question is like, it's, it's not just honey. In fact, it's, it's has very little to do with honey Mm -hmm. at this point.
3: Yeah. You were saying that it's completely inconceivable that there could be enough honeybees to subsist on this monoculture farm Mm -hmm. to pollinate all these almond, um, almond trees. But what were we doing before? And is it simply a matter of just eating less almond butter, eating less almond milk? Um, what do you see as a more sustainable future?
4: Well, it had a lot to do with scale. If we're talking about before as like a pre-big ag um, America, which I don't know, I I sort of, I don't, this isn't maybe totally an informed answer, but I imagine that shift really started to happen around like the 50s when when highways were becoming um, more widely institutionalized and um, it was easier to transport things. Um, It was easier to ship crops from place to place. So it made sense to, you know, grow all of your soybeans in Iowa and then ship them around. Um, Because it was easy to do so you didn't really have to grow things locally as much. So before that, if we're talking like, I don't know, 1880, say, um, a farm might look like it would be a lot smaller. Um, It would, you know, have a couple of people that lived on work and lived and worked on it. It would generate enough food for the people that lived and worked on it. And it would generate um, a little bit of extra food to sell um, and to live off of. And it would have, you know, maybe anywhere between five and 12 or even more crops growing on it at once. So that in itself means that there are more plants for bees to be foraging off of and feeding off of year round because things are blooming at different times. It's more staggered. They don't just have like one punctuated bloom that happens once a year. But because the farm is smaller... Um, it also means that um, there is land surrounding it. That bees who live on the farm um, are not limited to what's growing on the farm. There's you know trees and plants and flowers and what we might call wilderness around the farm that they can access and that they can forage off of. So say if their nutritional needs aren't being met by whatever's growing on the farm, they can they can reach something else. They can reach um, something more like undeveloped wilderness around them. These days on monocropping farms, I mean we look at you know we look at the Midwest, we look at Iowa, we look at Um, places out there it's just it's just miles and miles and miles and miles of of monoculture for as far as the eye can see and bees can fly a couple of miles in a day to to forage but they you know there's a limit as to how far they can fly and um, the further they fly the more calories they're burning you know the the higher the risks of starvation are so they they really do need a diversity of food that's close by and the way that the, the monoculture system currently exists it makes it largely impossible on big farms.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, So something you've been throwing around is um, colony collapse disorder. Can Mm -hmm. you kind of unpack what that is? Mm -hmm. Um, I too have doomsday vibes Mm -hmm. around that and I've just felt it's a really compelling story.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You're like, Oh my God, like the end of the world is nigh and it's, it's so clear. And why aren't we? Um, And you know, it's, it's valid and and good and important to be concerned about those things. But um, what I learned as I really started to bury my head into the subject matter is that beekeepers don't really talk about colony collapse disorder anymore. Um, Colony collapse disorder has a, a, a kind of set of criterion which basically says if it's clear why these bees have died, then that's not colony collapse disorder. The whole point of CCD, um, as it's abbreviated, is that it's, it's inexplicable and we don't totally or, you know, it's a myriad of causes. Whereas if your bees have clearly been killed off by um, a pesticide or a mite or a fungus um, or they've starved to death or they've abandoned their hive, that's not CCD. We are still seeing disturbingly high percentage rates of bees dying from from some of those causes that I just listed Um, every winter. I mean, like 50% die-off rate has kind of turned into the new normal every year. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was absolutely wildly abnormal. Uh, So it's it's definitely disturbing that those things are happening, but we can't really refer to it as CCD anymore. And um, you don't really hear talk about that so much in the beekeeper community. But it also raises the question, you know, why have these causes of death been as punctuated and why are they still as continuously high as they are what brought about CCD in the first place? And so I guess some context for CCD, for those who maybe aren't familiar, it kind of started uh, around 2006, 2007. It's when beekeepers started noticing that um, unbelievably high percentages of their bees were dying off every winter, you know. 30% 30 percent was considered high, but a lot of beekeepers were finding 80, 90 percent of their their honeybee hives had just completely died, and no one could really explain why. Um, and as awful as that was and as awful as it has continued to be, what was really great about it is that it just caused the most enormous flux of honeybee research that has ever happened in the history of the world. It just you know because it was so alarming and so unprecedented and frankly so scary because of how much we do rely on honeybees for our food systems. Um, all sorts of, you know, task forces and research departments and, um, and, and, grants and documentaries were made. And, um, we learned so much in the process. There are still a lot of questions that, that have been unanswered and there are still a lot of things that, you know, are, are broken and scary and not working and beyond our control. And a lot of more research needs to continue to be happening. But, um, the, the, the doomsday scenario that came up a lot with colony collapse disorder, which is, you know, if, if this continues as it has been in 30 years, we're not going to be able to rely on honeybee population, um, for pollination, and that is going to have major implications for the way we eat. The statistic that gets thrown around a lot is that about thirty percent of the food that the American diet consists um, of is foods that are uh, pollinated by honeybees. So it's 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 scary. It is, but um, a lot of those kind of kind of doomsday taglines are you know maybe well intentioned, but not not totally accurate.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the top of the episode, you kind of alluded to how um, what's happening with bees is kind of symbolic, or maybe revealing of other animal systems or in general food systems that we're abusing and so can you kind of wax poetic about what you've learned yeah
4: and I mean poetic is the word there because I I was I I don't know I felt so drawn to the drama of the honeybees because of how poetic and and you know it sounds corny to say it but they're these like really mystical animals they've had such a close relationship with people for so long and um have so much to do with a lot of yeah mystical and, and spiritual traditions and and the art world and design they're they're really intimate with us but um to be a little bit more scientific about it that also is kind of what makes them such a use, use useful indicator species is because of how intimately we've lived um alongside them for thousands of years i mean the ancient egyptians used to um float honeybee hives up and down the nile on rafts to yeah. pollinate their crops at different times like you know we've we've been close with them for a really long time and That makes them really valuable compared to other insects that we maybe are a lot less aware of. I'm sure you've read some of the Doomsday Scenario articles about, you know, 30% of the insect population at large in the entire world has died off in the last decade. And, And those, you know, those stories are awful and terrible. But part of the reason that they've unfolded in the way that they have in the first place is because of how anonymous a lot of the insect world is for people. Um, we, you know, we've basically built a society around like the whole point of distancing ourselves from insects and um, being as far away from them as we possibly can. So when they die off, we don't really notice it until it's kind of too late. Honeybees are different um, because they're really the only insect that we cultivate to the extent that we do um, and that we rely on in the way that we do. Um, so when honeybee populations start dying off, it has something to say to us and it you know, even though that's kind of an agricultural situation, it usually is indicative of things that are going on far beyond the agricultural world, um, and, and more in the natural world too. Um, and you know, chances are if something is happening to honeybees, it's happening to lots of other insects too. And when things happen to insects, they happen to pretty much every single other species going up and up the entire food chain. So it's, it's really important to, you know, pay attention to the bugs and we're lucky that we have honeybees to sort of wave the flags for us and, and, and point us in the right direction.
3: This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break.
1: Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in Northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, And combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu. And I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Namwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Woman in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West. Wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: And we're back. So we're going to kind of get into the series of essays that Jen wrote for Mold Magazine. Um, So what does it, every time um, I saw it on my screen, I
4: would misread it as bailing the queen. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to ball the queen? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a funny misread. So balling the queen is um, a term in the beekeeping community. Um, it has to do with the introduction of a new queen to a, um, an established beehive. Mm. Um, so you might have to do that for any number of reasons, but queen bees die um, in, a, in a healthy, normal honeybee hive. They'll sometimes live for a couple years, but um, we don't have healthy honeybee hives. We have honeybee hives where queen bees die all the time, sometimes in a matter of months. So beekeepers have to replace their queens all the time, but... Um, honeybees are very sensitive to smell and to pheromone so when a new queen is introduced they don't recognize her smell and they don't recognize her kind of distinctive pheromone potion and so they will often decide that the queen is um, an intruder or an enemy and they have a method of killing her which is not something that's exclusive to queens they can do it to you know if a wasp gets in the hive they might do it to a wasp as well or or any kind of foreign insect but um, it's, it's something that comes up with queen bees a lot that are introduced to a hive they will um, surround her in a, a ball of bees, basically like a bee sphere, really, really tightly, and they will all vibrate their wings um, and their their bodies to raise the temperature at the center of the ball until they effectively cook her to death. Um, and that that's called balling the queen.
3: Okay, so yeah. many questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if they if the bees somehow deem the queen as an invader, mm-hmm. um, is there a way for them to kind of persist with persist without a queen? How do they know that she's an invader?
4: Um, they, they know only because of, of their smell and their, their sense of pheromones. So, um, I mean, it's it's a good question. I think there is a world in which a, a hive can um, reproduce their own queen without having, a you know, they, they will lay eggs so that a queen will eventually be generated. But it does take some time and then beekeeping world time is money. And especially if there's a really limited growth season where they need bees to be laying and producing and producing. Um, doing other things other than queen rearing it's it's definitely in their best interests to get another queen who's already fully grown in there as quickly as possible mm. and, and kind of maximize profit for that reason so um yeah in in the quote-unquote natural world um uh, i have could probably figure out something else but
3: so how would they ensure that the new queen is accepted and yeah, successful?
4: it's really awful they have to put her in a little cage um so when they add her in, she's in a cage to protect her um, and the door to the cage has, like, a little piece of, of candy, so she can um, she can slowly eat her way out, and the bees can slowly eat their way in, mm-hmm. um, but it takes a couple of days, and by the time that uh, piece of candy is chewed all the way through, they've, in theory, kind of adapted to her smell, so they, by the time she gets out, hopefully will not decide to kill her.
3: That is so insane. Did, do you know
4: anything about how that cage was devised probably just like a long history of trial and error and yeah you can watch like tutorials on youtube of beekeepers like making their little ball of of sugar candy and stuffing the the door to the cage with it and it's really nutty stuff
3: yeah so anyway the the series of essays um can you kind of give an overview as to the arc of them um why you felt the need to kind of
4: immortalize your feelings on online yeah (laughs) Um, that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, I mean, as I've been working on this this project, you know, I just, I kept running into feeling frustrated that there really wasn't a tidy way to talk about it quickly. You know, it doesn't really boil down neatly to social media. There's so much going on here. Um, and as I was preparing for this uh, dinner event that I was working on with my collaborator, Caroline, we were sort of, you know, thinking about like, well, is there press for this? And like is there like a, a preamble piece and is there, do we give people homework to read before they come to the dinner so they can understand? And like, what would be the, the best thing for us to give them? And, you know, I, I, have done so much reading about it and there's a lot of pieces and essays and articles that I really enjoyed, but, um, there wasn't anything that I felt like was a full, uh, coherent picture of what I felt like was going on. And, um, I was in touch with um, a woman named Lin Yi who um, spearheads this publication called This is Mold, um, which is a publication about um, food and, and the future, effectively. And I kind of wanted them to write the piece uh, that I thought could be sort of a companion piece to this dinner project. And we could send to guests and say, you know, if you want some background reading before you come to this, read this piece. Um And then she and I hopped on the phone, and I I think I, like, yelled for 10 minutes kind of in the same vein of what I've just been doing to you. And she said, like, you know, I think you should write this piece. (laughs) And I kind of said, I don't know, I don't don't want to, it's too daunting, I don't know how. Um, And she, being the brilliant editor that she is, was like, nope, here it is, we're breaking it down into, you know, this list of things, this is how you come at it, and we'll help you, we'll edit, and um, yada, yada, yada a couple weeks and then months went by and then I threw like an 8,000 word long essay at her um, and she helped me sort of sculpt it into something a little bit more, co- more coherent which was um, really really great but that was the the genesis was basically like I don't really know how to talk about this as an art project but I do know how to you know walk people through the subject matter I mean it is still really long and it is still really daunting but it's, I think, a fairly compact, for how, how complicated the subject matter is, I think it's a fairly compact um, sort of place to start mm-hmm. and get your feet wet.
3: Yeah, so for those of us who have not, or didn't, were not able to attend the dinner, <laughs> um, so kind of take us through this. Let's say we did read these five essays before the dinner. Um, can you give us just a brief overview of the five essays, and then... Um, yeah, how the dinner was.
4: Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of it is what we've talked about today. It starts out with um, the almond orchards in California and, you know, what is effectively the biggest pollination event in the world. This thing that happens every February where 80% of the honeybees in America get shipped out to California to pollinate the almond crops. Um and from there, it sort of starts to talk about um, more of what we just talked about, the history of colony collapse disorder and this um, huge influx of research, which generated a lot of answers, but also generated more questions. You know, we have um, some idea as to why the honeybees are dying, but it's, it's all that we've really learned is that it's a confluence of maybe, you know, between 10 and 50 different things. We haven't really pinned it down to um, one particular issue Um, So it talks about that history a lot. It talks about where we've wound up currently, where we're not as much talking about CCD, but we are still dealing with massive honeybee death and with, um, you know, an economic system for commercial honeybee keepers that's really volatile and and really in flux and um, raises a lot of questions about what a future without honeybees could look like. Um, Would it necessarily be a bad thing? Are there solutions that are viable? The answer is, yeah, there are. It would just um, require reshaping for how we think about big ag. Uh, and the way we farm in America, you know, m- monocultures have enabled and necessitated uh, commercial honey beekeeping to happen in the way that it has. but that doesn't mean that it should be that way. And it you know doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, it could be a different way as well. Um, so I talked about those things a little bit. Um, talked about um, the evils of monocultures at greater length and basically how it's a complete distortion of anything that might happen in the natural world. Um, and it's it's not just problems with honeybees that have been brought about by the explosion of monocultures over the past couple of decades. It's um, all sorts of problems with watersheds and soil erosion and contaminating the oceans and contaminating rivers. And um, it's it's just been a nightmare on so many levels. So if you want to read about that at greater length, I've got an essay for you. <laughs> um, and then it talked a little bit about the process of working on this dinner uh, and thinking about, how to use food to draw attention to food and, um, why that's a viable method for people who are, you know, maybe walking into a dinner like this and haven't spent the past couple of years beating their head against the subject matter and, um, you know, reading every horrible essay that they come across about, uh, mass honeybee death and, and what it says about, you know, consumer culture and those sorts of things. So basically just trying to you know, you can't make the subject matter friendly, but you can hopefully make it a little bit more digestible. And I think food, mm. uh, <laughs> and I think food is a really good way to do that, um, just in terms of being a really viable um, communal meeting ground that, you know, it's a thing that people from all sorts of walks of life and all sorts of different backgrounds have in common. And um, it's it's a really valuable jumping off point.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. After we got back from break, you said you're still quite uncomfortable with calling this like an art project. Um, So why um you say that food is this kind of perfect medium for talking about difficult things but um why art in response to these questions why food
4: yeah uh I mean I've always felt a little bit slippery about talking about making food as an art project just because I think all chefs are artists and that's maybe a little bit of a, a derailing from what we're talking about today but um I do think both art and food, you know, either together or separately, are really uh, useful ways in, in sort of shifting perceptions a little bit. Um, we were really lucky to work on this dinner project to have um, the collaboration of an artist named Terence Coe to work on this project with us. Um, he is um, responsible for making a series of installations, which he refers to as beach apples. Um, and he's made a couple of them so far in different locations, one in upstate New York, one in LA, and I think one in New York proper. Um, but the idea behind them is that they are effectively a giant beehive that you can walk inside of and sit inside of, and you'll be separated from uh, you know, the bees themselves and from their activity by a layer of mesh, but you can um, see them and you can hear them and you can smell them and you can feel their vibrations. And it's um, a pretty powerful experience, and I think... You know, if our goal is to basically try to drive people towards an experience of empathy with insects, which is maybe something that a lot of people aren't super inclined to feel or to want to do, um, that, that really putting people in, in close proximity to, to something as beautiful and as um, powerful as a honeybee hive is a really useful way to do it. I have really clear recollections of the first time I ever saw inside of a honeybee hive, um, which was when I was maybe 22 years old and it's a really powerful thing but you know most people have never had that experience before of seeing a hive broken open and um, looking inside and seeing the combs and seeing the frames it's it's really powerful and I think for a lot of people that's kind of the the gateway drug to turning into beekeepers or bee obsessives but for people who haven't had that experience um you know here's an even more extreme and, and potentially even more powerful way of doing it which is stepping inside something like a bee chapel mm-hmm. so we were really lucky to have Terrence uh, build us a a permanent beach chapel installation on site, um, at the farm that we hosted the balling, the queen dinner at. And I think that really enabled it to become a much more sort of holistic and, um, and, and, powerful part of the experience for for diners
3: so how did you and terrence kind of come to know each other and know yeah. each other's work yeah like, it's like soulmates
4: <laughs> um i have been a huge fan of his for a long time um and when i was working with uh caroline maxwell the producer and um collaborator that i had on this project i was we were you know just we had a lot of spitballing meetings and i said like you know this artist Terence Cole? i'm such a huge fan like these pictures she's like yeah i know i am I've worked with him before. I'll send him an email. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay why? <laughs> like, why would you do that? She's like, I'll get him to build one for us. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you can do that? I didn't even know that was an option. Because um, in normal world, it's not for me. Uh, and she's just such a go-getter. Um, Terence is, I've, he's incredible, but he's also incredibly shy and um, and very mysterious, you know, we had a lot of press pieces written about this dinner wanting to talk to Terrence and that basically was impossible because he's just super secluded and, um, and shy and likes to do his own thing. So in order to communicate with him about this project, um, he would effectively, uh, he, he strongly preferred to write handwritten letters. Uh, I know. Um, And Caroline was the one who was communicating with him, and she had um, recently broken her right hand in a bike accident. Um, So she was writing him these letters (laughs) left-handed. And, you know, Terrence has a very uh, very poetic and and mysterious and um, kind of cryptic way of speaking. So they were writing each other these really, uh, I don't know, he might even be upset that I'm like speaking this loud on the air, but uh, yeah, very kind of mysterious and poetic and and cryptic letters that they were writing back and forth, and uh, frankly, I'm really glad that I was not the one who was tasked with doing it, Um, but Caroline was totally game for it, and um, he actually was not at the dinner. I never never got to meet him, Um, but uh, he was, I think, I I hope really... uh, excited about the project and a a really vital contributor to it
3: Mm -hmm. so did he himself build it there
4: no he um he sent us plans uh yeah and a lot of the plans were i mean i'm maybe sort of ruining the mystique of the project but a lot of the plans were um like 3d cutting um plans and 3d printer and um, wood cuts and stuff like that and it was a massive effort to build this thing Um, It was like a pretty serious piece of construction, but um, it yeah, it was it was pretty incredible to have his his brain involved in the operation
3: Mm -hmm. Um, So Shifting gears, yeah. can't get over the written letters. Um, <laughs> but, so let's talk about the dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that with each iteration, small things would change. Mm-hmm. So um, can you talk about kind of menu conception, um, what you felt was necessary to feed your diners, and also kind of what kind of experience you wanted to um, give these people who are effectively supporting the bee cause, or mm-hmm. whatever that means, um, by with their money?
4: Yeah, so, that's a great question. What does it mean? And I don't totally have that answer yet. We've done two um, kind of different iterations of the event so far. Um, one of them was uh, what what Caroline kind of referred to as a salon. So it was hosted at a small studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Um, and it was kind of, for me, centered around a panel that we had with um, three different people who are, not, you know, experts in, in different kinds of fields. One of them is uh, a chef who does a lot of work with food sustainability and, um, and local farming. Um, Evan Hanks, sorry, he's the chef at Egg Restaurant here in Brooklyn. Um, Allie Wist was the second person on the panel. She's an artist and a researcher. Um, she's a contributor to Savor. She's a um, food studies and, and food and climate change um, professor at NYU in the New School. Um, And she spends a lot of time thinking about future food systems. And then um, the third uh, panelist was Geraldine Simonis, who is um, the head beekeeper at Brooklyn Grange, which, if any listeners are not familiar, is the largest soil-based rooftop farm in the world. And that's also located in Brooklyn. Um, And they have a, a really flourishing beekeeping program there that Geraldine oversees. Uh, so we had a panel with these three people, um, and then we also had a lot of snacks um, that I, I spearheaded, but we had some really amazing snack contributors, too. Um, and we served uh, mead by Enlightenment Wines Meadery, which is also a, a local Brooklyn operation. They have a bar here called Honey's, uh, and their stuff is, is just really, really beautiful. So we were we were very honored to be able to serve something so close to home and also, obviously, honey-adjacent. Um, and then we had a video installation by an artist named Eric Epstein, who I'm a huge admirer of, and he's made some really sort of psychedelic and beautiful um, B-centric video pieces for us. So that was the, the kind of salon. And that for me was a valuable format because we were able to very directly answer a lot of questions with, um, you know, the, the format of the panel. Um, it's, it's difficult to build an event that feels fun without really beating people over the head with too much information um, and maybe we did. I don't know. I um was not a not an unbiased <laughs> event goer, but um that that to me, made a lot of sense is like really trying to break open the subject matter in as um, approachable a way as possible for a large group. Uh, and then the second event that we did was um the dinner which uh, happened a couple weeks ago in New Haven, Connecticut at a farm called Farm River Farm, which was just the most extraordinarily beautiful place we possibly could have imagined to host this at. And they also do have a small apiary, well, small meaning about 20 hives, which for I think a lot of people sounds actually like a very large apiary um, that they they have on the farm there. So uh, it was pretty pretty cool to be able to make food with um, uh, food that had been grown as hyper locally as as, is imaginable and also in a place that has such a a thriving bee community Um, and I was kind of riffing on some of the food ideas that I had served at the first event but it was a sit-down dinner not a cocktail party so I kind of had to expand it into a um, a I think we did like seven ish courses it was like a a pretty big menu Mm
3: -hmm. and what did you serve?
4: Ooh, uh, so many things. So the, the kind of appetizer, I'll just tell you about a couple of them, but, um, one of the kind of appetizer bread courses that we did is something that Evan, who is the chef at egg that I mentioned earlier, um, he kind of introduced me to as a concept, which is edible candles. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are, um, candles that are made out of animal fat, um, and as the fat burns and, and melts, they, you know, turn into something that you can dip bread into. It's huh. Yeah, it's basically like the same idea of dipping bread into olive oil, but it's um, a candle that is on fire on your table and is melting. And it's it's delicious. And, you know, historically speaking, humans have made candles out of animal fat since, you know, before beeswax was readily available uh so that's that's nothing new but the idea of choosing to eat them is maybe a little bit a little bit more new um and i I wanted to include that just as a way of thinking about you know a world without bees which is to say like going backwards what what maybe was that like what could that be like in the future um just to sort of think anachronistically and also futuristically at the same time um, so we did the edible candles on the table with um, bread from a, a local baker in New Haven, which was really, really, really delicious. Um, what else did we serve? A lot of it was um, trying to, you know, obviously find ways to focus on crops that are necessary for, um, uh, that require bee pollination in order to to grow and to, to flourish. Um, I didn't factor in almonds too heavily because it just felt too sad to like, make a lot of people eat a bunch of almonds that are, you know, so responsible for massive, massive, uh, destruction of habitat, um, and bee populations, but, um, a lot of foods that require pollination. So like buckwheat showed up at a couple different points. Um, a lot of citrus things, cucumbers, radishes, um, a lot of different spices like cardamom, sesame, um, a lot of, you know, things that we eat all the time that we, Mm. we really take for granted, you know, blueberries, avocados, things like that, things we, you know, we as uh, New York health food people can't imagine living life without. Um, so I wanted to draw attention to those things, but then also wanted to play with incorporating bee products and also the flowers that bees rely on for foraging in a couple, you know, maybe unexpected ways. So edible flowers showed up at a couple different points in the menu. Um, I made lavash, which is like a big flatbread that had been um, pressed with um, whole edible flowers and herbs. So they had sort of like a, a floral pattern built into them. And those were, I think, really pretty. Um, I had served, uh, you and I were messaging about this cherries that had been preserved in, um, a really thick layer of beeswax for a couple of weeks, which I guess is also a fairly old technique for food preservation. You can, um, coat fruit in a really thick layer of beeswax and it acts as a preservative. So fermentation can kind of go on undisturbed within it. Um, so those were sort of like a, a table party favor was these preserved cherries that I thought came out really tasty. And, um, what else did we serve? Um, there was, a there was a noodle dish that was like a a chilled buckwheat soba noodles. Um, and those had a bunch of different kind of bee centric things in it. I don't know. It's, it's always interesting to come up with things that are seasonal and things that are, you know, people are going to enjoy eating, especially on a hot day in August. And I'm just such a cold noodle nut and buckwheat is a, um, a crop that, um, absolutely benefits from bee pollination. So that was kind of a, an interesting pivot for me. Um. And then we sent people home with little um, buckwheat shortbread cookies that had edible flowers pressed into them, which I thought was pretty cute.
3: Mm-hmm. So in the the last essay, um, you kind of write that while there are financial actionable steps that you outline, um, what you really want is just more people to think and care about food. Yeah. And so how what was kind of like the desired experience for your diners? And what what do you
4: hope that they're doing now and thinking about now? Yeah, I mean, as I as I mentioned in the piece, I'm always really uncomfortable telling people what to do with their money and saying, you know, go spend money on this thing or, you know, change your diet in these ways. And I don't know, that stuff is also so expensive and so personal. And, um, you know, who am I to tell anyone how to eat? But I guess my hope is um, just just an, an increase in curiosity and an empathy and an understanding. Um, I think with so much of the, you know, kind of doomsday apocalyptic scenarios that we're, we're, we run into every day, both, you know, in the media, but also in real life, it's really easy to just flip a switch and try to shut it all out and, you know, deliberately choose to not learn and not understand, you know, it becomes too much, it becomes overwhelming and I I understand why people might engage with it that way. Um, so I guess my hope was, if anything, to just give people a little bit of a, an easy way in in understanding, you know, some of these really pressing agricultural issues that are going on, because something that's really interesting about the term unsustainability is that it, it's so overused that we we kind of forget that what it literally means is that this cannot continue as it has been. It will not work. It will fail. It will collapse. Um, and I think the risks, you know, we're not necessarily talking about extinction of the honeybees, because I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But we are talking about um, agricultural systems that, you know, might not be able to continue to feed us in the way that they have been. Um, You know, the world population is huge. There are a lot of people that need to eat. And I think a lot of what we take for granted boils down to a question of access, is if certain crops become more expensive, certain, you know, fresh produce in particular, which is already less available to, um, you know, less privileged communities and Those things are only going to continue to get worse if these problems continue to be aggravated. So at the very least, we can think of it, it, you know, if we if we don't have the compassion to 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 think about environmentalism as a means in and of itself, then I think at the very least we all have, you know, human rights, compassion and um, and and care about people being able to get the food that they need.
3: Thank you for providing us with this easy way in. (laughs) (laughs) I hope
4: I hope that's what it is.
3: This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back next week. Thanks for having me.
1: This program is powered by Simplecast.